Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church, wherever you're tuning in from today, whether online, day of, or later on, if you're listening back to the podcast, I want to welcome you to Ridge Church and let you know my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church, and I serve with the youth and young adults primarily, and uh, I'm excited to be able to chat with you today. And if you've been tracking with us in 2023 as we've hopped into the new year, you know that for the last number of weeks and through this month that we've been in this series that we've called together. And it's all about one thing that matters to us, and that's relationships. No matter who you are, no matter what your marital status is, no matter what kind of home you grew up in, the reality is you have relationships. And the reality is that this series has primarily been about exactly that, marriage relationships, which is important and it's helpful for many of us, that is the reality we live in. Or for others, it's the reality we hope to be in someday. Um, but for some, that's not quite the case. I was talking uh, with one of our youth leaders the other day who is in a small group um, where no one at this point is married. And that makes sense. Most of them are young adults. And, and I was asking how small group was going and how they were kind of not enjoying, but experiencing this series. And he said this thing where he said, well, it was interesting. We sat down as a community group to do the questions um, and the sermon was all about marriage and how to have a good marriage. And, and it was helpful and we were all talking about it, but, but he remembered sitting there and just kind of going, nice, like that was great. I don't, I don't really know what more to do with that besides think that's good advice for someday down the road when I get married. And, and so today what we want to do is, is not take a step back from this idea of relationships and idea of marriage, but, but consider the reality of singleness. Consider the reality of singleness not just as a concept and not just as a temporary thing that people are in the midst of while they wait to step into the full humanity of being married, but rather a profound and beautiful reality for many that we find in the scriptures. We want to talk about why it matters, what it has to do with the church and our church and how we can actually engage with people who are single as well as people who are married and what it means for you to be a follower of Jesus when you are single, whether you are hoping to be married someday or not. And before I go any further, I want to make an honest confession. I am not speaking on this topic from a place of personal experience. I got married young. My wife and I were 19 years old when we got engaged. We were both 20 on our wedding day. Um, and, and I love my wife, Jalisa, very, very much. We've been married almost eight years. Um, we're in our late 20s now. And, and when I chat with people and they ask me about how old I am, and then they ask me if I'm married, and I tell them I'm married, they, they tend to ask, you know, how long have you been married? And, and when I tell people um, across the spectrum of who I meet, um, I am 28 years old and I've been married for almost eight years. I kind of get one of two responses. One, and it's primarily found outside of the church when I interact with people um, just in a coffee shop or old friends from school or, or people who maybe are not part of the Christian subculture. Their response is, what? Are you insane? You got married when you were 20 years old? You were just a kid. Are you still married? What were you thinking? How could that possibly have worked? That was a foolish idea. I remember being that young and getting some words of warning from people who I really, really respected, primarily from outside the church, but even inside the church, saying, are you sure you are old and mature enough to step into marriage? 
But then I get another response, and, and that one I tend to see more in the context of Christian subculture and in the church. And, and that the, the following question is, oh, are you married? Okay, yes. How long? Eight years or so. Okay. The, the next question is, do you have kids? No, we don't have kids. The next question is, well, when are you going to have kids? Why don't you have kids yet? And now that's an incredibly personal question to be asked upon first meeting someone. And the assumption in that question is that the goal of your life, if you are a married person, must be to build a traditional nuclear family where you get married, buy a house, have the exact 1.5 children that we have in Canada to have not too many, but just enough, and live out this picture-perfect American or Canadian dream of what a family is meant to look like. And that's because culturally marriage and by extension, the nuclear family as an institution and a concept holds a very interesting place for most people. A sort of tension, if you will, that if a number of weeks ago you heard Jonathan speak a little bit to. On the one hand, we live in a cultural moment where marriage seems to be necessary at best and oppressive at worst. It is a system that is nothing more than something to trap people within a structure that holds them back from experiencing the freedom that life has to offer, the freedom that sexual expression might provide that they could find on Tinder. This view says marriage is nothing. My generation, the millennials, is the first generation of currently recorded data where there is right now more people single than there is married. That is to say, there is more people in my age category who are single or unmarried than there are those of us who are married. According to one study, by the time anyone eat, reaches the age of 50 in this day and age, 25% of those people will have never been married. That doesn't even take into account the number of people who reach 50 and are no longer married because of a divorce or a loss of a spouse. Each year, the average uh, age where a North American adult will get married moves a little further down the road. Right now, as of 2018, was the last kind of recorded study on this that I could find. It was somewhere around 28 to 29 years old is the average age when someone chooses to be married. We've also seen the removal of sexual taboo, uh, the normalization of things like promiscuity and pornography, that you can find sexual fulfillment wherever you want without any form of actual attachment or responsibility, whether alone with your phone in a room or by swiping on Tinder and finding someone to hook up with. Hookup culture, all these different things have created a new cultural reality where you don't have to marry someone in order to get the physical expression of what marriage has traditionally held. Marriage is restricting, it's preventing, it's holding people back from their truest and most authentic self. Or maybe for you, that's not really how you view marriage, but you've seen marriage done and you know marriage is just a doomed reality. Marriages end in divorce and that's not just a world thing, that's a church thing. That's a Christian thing. The numbers on divorce for Christians are the same or greater than the numbers on divorce for anyone out there in the world. There is no legitimate hope for marriages, or at least not good ones. Maybe you grew up in a home where you saw a marriage that never ended, but you watched the unhealth in that place. Maybe, heartbreakingly, your experience with marriage was watching an abusive marriage, verbally or physically or even sexually. 
where you've seen marriage as a place where someone has been trapped. And so the natural consequence of that reality is to look and say, what's the point? Marriage clearly doesn't work. There's no need for it. There's no purpose for it. But on the other hand, and particularly so in church culture, there's a sort of obsession with romantic love, an obsession with marriage that flows out of a deep desire that can result in a total and complete um, focusing in on romantic relationships as marriage. This view would say marriage is everything. You need to find your soulmate. You need to find your one. In the words of Tim Keller, he says the, the call of this view is to say, I need someone who will fill every vacant emotion, awaken dormant gifts in me, and continuously enrapture me in emotional bliss. That's a lot of pressure for a spouse. It's a complete and total rewriting of the meaning and purpose of marriage that is influenced not by the Bible, but by Hollywood scripts. And it results in a singleness anxiety. I talked to a friend who's um, my age and single currently, and she was explaining the anxiety I feel when I go to an event where I know that we're going to play a board game where it's all about partners and I'm the only one who's not married. Why haven't I found a spouse yet? Is there something wrong with me? Everyone else is further along in the journey of life. Everyone else is younger and better looking. Everyone else is more desirable than me. Everybody else is getting married, but I'm not. Am I losing my desirability to become a partner? Is there enough single people for me to meet at this church or that church or whatever church it may be? Do the people I want to marry meet my standards? What are my standards for someone I want to marry? And there's this anxiety about if I'm going to be a full-on adult, I'm going to need to find a spouse. And it seems a little more intense in Christian settings and circles. All the time, I hear these conversations happen in our church, in the lobby, all over the place. We say things like, so, found someone yet? Oh, you're great. Nobody scooped you up yet? I can't believe you're not married yet. You're so Awesome. And we say these things that, that create actually a culture where we have, if I might be so bold, idolized marriage. A friend of mine, Michael, who is a theology professor who looks at the reality of human nature, said this in a Q&A we were speaking in together, and I wanted to make sure I checked in with him on the quote. He said, within North American evangelicalism, heterosexual marriage is one of the most powerful and the most accepted idols. Or as author Abby Smith puts it, in the church in particular, singles idolize marriage and treat it as the ultimate goal. Then they get married and they search for the idolized marriage they so long idolized. And all of this flows from this reality that anyone who is single is likely reckoning with. It's being alone. Author Paul Tillich says there's two sides to being alone. There's the beautiful side, solitude. I can sit, or read the, sit and read the paper. I can sit and read a book. There's no pressure. There's no responsibility. I have nothing but free time. But there's also the other side of aloneness, and that's loneliness, to be alone. And in Genesis 2, we see at the very beginning what this series has flowed out of for us, this call that the Lord God looked at Adam, who was alone, and has said, it is not good for man to be alone. The first thing God sees as not good is aloneness. 
Not sinful. See, this is before Genesis 3, before sin has entered the world. But God looks at Adam alone and says it is not good. Why? Because our God exists in relationship. We believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Separate persons, but united as God. God is one, and yet God is three. And they have lived eternally in communion and relationship with one another. They form that eternal reality of love and community out of which all creation has flowed. The creation of Adam flows out of the love that God has in the context of the Trinity. And so when God looks at Adam alone, he is able to say, it is not good. And this is often incorrectly seen as a marriage passage because what's the first thing Adam does when he sees God create a wife Eve for him? It's to write a love poem. And to sing a love song, Genesis 2.23, this at last, Adam says, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, Genesis says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This is a marriage passage, but the question then becomes, what does that mean for the rest of us who are not married? whether that's by choice, whether that's by tragedy, whether by heartbreak, or whether by not yet finding a partner to be married to. Are those who are unmarried somehow less than? Are, are those who are unmarried somehow less human? Are they not good in the eyes of God? Do they have to experience a season of life or an entire lifetime of not goodness because they are alone? During the legalization of gay marriage in the United States, Justice Anthony Kennedy was asked about um, why he was supporting it. And, and he said this, he said, marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out and find no one there. It offers the hope of companionship and understanding and assurance that while both still live, there will be someone to care for the other. And amidst all the drama and all the noise and all the politics about gay versus straight, nobody seemed to hear the cry of the single community who said, what, so we're not a part of it? So we as singles, if we never get married, we won't have anyone to care for us? No one will invite us into community? We don't have anything to call our own? We don't have companionship? We don't have someone to care for us. Is that it then? Be single, alone, and lonely, or do everything you can to find a spouse as fast as you can. Submit to this universal fear that no one is ultimately there for you. Or think of nothing else but finding a spouse until you can achieve the goal of marriage. My friends, I want to tell you today that is not the picture that the Bible paints. In a deep and profound way, the Bible affirms and even encourages singleness as a legitimate and beautiful, beautiful way of life. Four quick notes on how the Bible affirms this. First and foremost, primarily, Jesus himself. We follow a Savior and a Messiah who is single. Jesus was single and fully human. And before you say, well, that's different because Jesus was God, that's bad theology. That's not the case. Philippians 2.6 tells us that Jesus took on the nature of a servant. servant. He was made in human flesh. Jesus was 100% human. 
Jesus, in our theological understanding, is the ultimate expression of what it means to be fully human. He lived the ultimate expression of humanity, the fullness of abundant life and humanity. And in that life, he never got married. He never had sex. And he never had children. But if you say, well, it's different because it's Jesus, well, look at Paul the greatest missionary, the prime theologian of the entirety, not the entirety, but a a large chunk of the New Testament. He was captured in his heart by what he calls in Philippians 3, the upward call that God has given him. He had no time, no interest, no desire to be married, which we'll talk more about in a little bit because he had a deep dedication to God's call on his life. The two most primary characters in the New Testament that we read and look to as the scriptures of God's word to us are single celibate men. But we also see this in the broad look of the Bible. We see the Imago Dei, the image of God placed on every human being, the dignity and value that every human being has, not wealth, not status, not legacy, not how many children you have, When Paul writes that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all what? One in Christ. He is speaking to the reality, not that none of those things exist. Male and female still exist. Jews and Greeks still exist. What he is saying is that our primary identifier is not those things, but our reality of being created and in the image of God. And then finally, we see in the Bible an eschatological eschatological vision. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked about marriage, asked about if someone marries multiple people and he dies and you marry someone else and he dies and you marry someone else, who will that person be married to in heaven? Jesus responds that there is no marriage in heaven. There is no marriage in eternity. No one will be given in marriage or married. Marriage, even at its best, is temporary. Marriage, rightly so, is held up as a beautiful picture of the gospel, but being a picture of something is not the same thing as being the thing itself. Even the very best marriage will end one day. And what we can do in the church is we can take this thing, this marriage reality that is meant to be a picture of the gospel reality of Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. And we can stop seeing it as a picture and start seeing it as the main thing. But even with all this biblical evidence that points us to the clear reality that to be single is not a position of shame, failure, or lack, there still seems to be a sort of stigma around those who are unmarried. That's because in nearly every culture, also including ours, but especially in Jewish culture in which Paul and Jesus lived and wrote, marriage was practically essential if you had any hope of experiencing blessing. Think about it. Many promises of God in the Old Testament are given to who? To families, We call them the patriarchs and they have specific regard to their offspring. He promises Abraham a son who will carry on Abraham's line. He promises Noah offspring after the flood. The the Jewish end game of blessing was to have a big family, have a big amount of land, have big influence and have it stretching out legacy throughout the generations. And this makes sense in that culture. There's no TFSAs or RSPs. There's no social security. Family was how you secure your own future. The view of elders was that their kids would one day take care of them. 
So the command, the, the mandate that we see in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, it would assume then that you need to have as many children as possible, hopefully males, and hope that most of them are able to make a lot of money, get a lot of land, and take care of you when you get old. To be single, to be without children, is to be at best ignored and at worst excluded from the promises of God. But then Jesus arrives on the scene a single man, but he gets asked all the time about this idea of marriage. And in Matthew 19, we find a story where a group of Pharisees are trying to stump Jesus by asking about divorce and marriage, and his disciples are there with Jesus. And here's how it plays out. Matthew 19, starting in verse three, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, referring back to that Genesis 2 passage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. But they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another is committing adultery. Now we've spoken about this passage before at this church. If you're really, really interested in a breakdown of that, go back and listen. Jonathan preached an amazing message on it uh, a year or so ago that you can find on our YouTube or podcast. But what I really want to hone in on is not what Jesus is saying in response to them, but what happens immediately following this conversation as it carries on. Matthew 19 and verse 10, the disciples heard Jesus say this and they say this incredible thing. They, they look at Jesus, they hear what he said to the Pharisees and they say, well, if, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. That sounds hard. That sounds complicated. That sounds frustrating. That is a commitment I am not interested in. Now the disciples, some of whom were married, some of whom were not, were saying that is like an intense amount of commitment. And my immediate assumption would be that Jesus would push back and say, yeah, it is a, a ton of commitment. And yeah, you should be married. And yeah, you gotta go all in. And, and in some extent, we see that in the New Testament and in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is saying what God has brought together, let not man separate. But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. Verse 11, Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs or made themselves like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus refers to eunuchs, which are those who do not have or have mutilated genitalia. And he says, there are those who are eunuchs by birth, those who are born and the nature of them is that their sex organs did not properly come out. But then he says, there's those who've been made eunuchs by men, by mutilation. This was often a way to prevent your slaves from ever rebelling against you or trying to have children or trying to get more power. It was a brutal and wrong and sinful practice. But then Jesus says this, there are those who have made themselves like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Now, before we move on, I want to give a quick side note. Jesus is not talking about a physical manifestation of this. He is talking about a choice and a heart posture that a person makes to live a single celibate life. 
where marriage is not pursued, the birthing of children is not pursued, and where sexual gratification is not pursued. In this statement, Jesus flips eyes upside down as he so often does all the expectations his disciples have about what it means to live a good and full and meaningful life. Stanley Hauerhaus, American theologian, writes this about Christianity. He says, Christianity was the first religious system in the ancient world to view singleness as a viable option and a non-shameful form of adult life. See, rather than a single person in Jesus' eyes being an emotional leper, stuck in a space where their life lacks the meaning and purpose that everyone craves, of those who are married and having children, Jesus repaints the reality of singleness, whether for a time before someone is married or for an entire lifetime, as a beautiful opportunity for what? For the kingdom. Single celibate, not because something is wrong with them, not because they messed up, not because they're not attractive enough or they're too old or they can't find the right mate, not because they are not incredible, beautiful people who are made in the image of God and would be an incredible spouse, but rather because for Jesus, singleness is a whole new category of participation in full and abundant life. And then we see a New Testament that is filled with teaching and examples showing that singleness is something to be admired and lived out in the context of the local church. In Acts chapter 6, we see people specifically selected to care for the widows. We often look at this as the, the deacons being assigned, but what does this flow out of? The disciples, the leaders of the church, looking at the church and saying, we need to care for those who are unmarried. Our culture says it's their family's responsibility. We as the church are saying we are their family. A calling and caring to make sure that those without families are being cared for. Or in the words of one author, Peter Valk, it is the church's responsibility to build family for celibates. In James 1, when he describes what true religion looks like, what does he point to? Care for the widow. Care for someone who is not married. In Philippians, we find out that the beginning of the church in Philippi, pardon me, in the book of Acts and then later in the book of Philippians, who is at the core of the church plant in Philippi? Lydia, who is likely a single older woman. A slave girl who would have certainly been single and unmarried. We see at the centerpiece of the core of the church, not just people with the prototypical nuclear family, but people who God has called to be in a new kind of family. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, we see Paul's breakdown of marriage with such incredible verses like verse 8, where he says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Or later on in the passage where he says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released to, from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life. I am trying to spare you. Paul seems almost like allergic to marriage, where he's like going back and forth. He's like, it's not a sin. It's not a bad thing, but I don't recommend it. Paul does not seem all that interested in marriage. It is not held up as the pinnacle of what it means to be a human being. He almost seems to be saying, if you have to, if you absolutely need to, then so be it, that's an option. 
But why? Well, Paul explains it towards the end of the chapter. He says, this is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. Now, what is Paul saying there? Is he saying that if you are a spouse, a husband or a wife, you should be a bad spouse? No, he's not saying that. What he's saying and referring to is the reality that we live in a world that is passing away what theologians call the already not yet or the overlapping kingdoms. That this world in its entirety is not the end game for us. That this reality in its entirety is not the end game for us. That there is a greater kingdom coming and even now breaking in. That God right now is in the process of making all things new. As I said earlier, that marriage is a temporary picture of the ultimate marriage that we see in Jesus and his church. And what does that mean then? That singleness is a beautiful opportunity. Four quick thoughts on that. First of all, singleness is an opportunity for devotion. To be single for a season or for a lifetime allows us to focus our devotion on God. Paul writing, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. This is in 1 Corinthians 7. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. I'm not trying to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure this, your undivided devotion to the Lord. Hey, here's the reality. If you desire to be married, you will never have the appropriate vision for a romantic relationship unless you have the right vision of God. Until you see God as who he truly is, until you have an understanding of what it means for you to be a follower of Jesus, you will never ever get a romantic relationship right. If you expect your spouse by idolizing marriage to be your functional savior, you will hurt them and find yourself disappointed. Your husband, your wife, if you are married or if you are hoping to be married, is probably an incredible partner, an amazing parent, a great friend, but they are a terrible Messiah. Secondly, we see that singleness is an opportunity to make a difference. See, singleness provides time and space for you to do more, in Jesus' words, for the kingdom of heaven. John Piper famously said, don't waste your life, might I offer, don't waste your singleness. Do not waste your season of singleness, whether it is temporary or for the entirety of your life. I get to serve in our youth ministry, which I love. It's incredible. My wife and I get to do that together. She's an incredible youth leader, all that kind of stuff. But most of our youth leaders are unmarried young adults. And that's because the call we put on a youth leader is to show up at 6 p.m. on a Wednesday, most of them coming straight from work or straight from school, and spend the entire evening serving with about a bunch of rambunctious kids and running hard and praying and helping do stuff. Then we get them to clean up. And by the time we're done, it's about 10 p.m. What's always amazing with our youth leaders is they, uh, we finish the night, it's 9.45 p.m. I'm going, I want to go to bed. I want to get, um, like, I want to have a cup of tea and sit and read a book. And they're like, let's go to the pub. Let's go hang out. Let's go get appies. 
Because for many of them, that is the stage of life that they are in. They can show up. They can serve all night. They can still have the energy to keep going afterwards. If you are married with young kids, you probably will not fit the mold of what we need as a youth leader on a Wednesday night. The world needs single people to make a difference that only you can make, that only you are positioned to make, to have influence in people's lives in a way that only you can have to serve in ways that only you can serve, to bless the world, to bless our city in only ways that you can. That's not to say that those who are married or have kids cannot serve and bless in incredible and beautiful ways, but those who are in a life or season of singleness can make a wonderful difference. Thirdly, we see that singleness is an opportunity to remove distraction. Paul's words, I don't want you to be anxious about worldly things. If you think about your biggest regrets, oftentimes they're not mistakes, but they're missed opportunities. They're things that you could have done but didn't. Things that you could have done with your life, things that you could have done with your time, but you watched Netflix or sat on Instagram or swiped through a dating app. If we waste our time with distractions, we will regret the things that we didn't do. If you are in a season If you are in a place of singleness and you have the time and capacity and energy, you should join a group, serve like crazy, find deep community and lean all the way into it. Use your time and energy and space that you have to bless those around you, to love our city, to serve our city, but also to be blessed by others in the context of community. And then fourthly, singleness is an opportunity for discovery. Here's a question, whether you want to be married or not. Do you know who you are? One of the greatest challenges for Jaleesa and I when we first got married, as young as we were, is that I think for me in particular, I didn't really know who I was. I remember talking to Jaleesa at one point a few years into our marriage about some of the things and the challenges that we were facing and some of the challenges that I specifically was facing. And I remember Jaleesa saying, yeah, I I didn't know that before we got married. I remember thinking about that as, oh man, did I like trick my wife? Did I lie? Did I hide this? And what I realized is, no, I hadn't even discovered myself. I hadn't taken the time to figure out who I am. What an opportunity singleness gives us is to discover ourselves in the context of community and in the context of following Jesus. So make sure you use that space and use that time, not to navel gaze, but to understand who you are and how God's created you. And so all this, when we look at 1 Corinthians 7, we kind of have to ask the question, is Paul, as the prime theologian of the New Testament, is he anti-marriage? He does not seem very interested in marriage at all, but he's not. Listen to verse 7. He says, I wish that all people were as I am. Is an I wish this. This is my preference. But, he writes, each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, one has that. Here's what you need to know today, regardless of your relationship or marital status. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. It may not be a gift you want, but that doesn't make it any less of a gift. When I was graduating high school, um, it was the season where everyone was getting their grad presents from their parents or grandparents or whatever it may be. And I had friends getting cars and trips to Mexico and we're going to pay for you to fly to Europe and backpack Europe and it's going to be this incredible thing. And, and my parents came home one day. They said, we have a grad gift for you. And I was so excited. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm driving like a terrible little Honda Civic. Maybe it's a nicer car. Maybe it's a trip. What, what's it going to be? And they show me that they bought me a really high quality mattress. 
I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> I, I don't need a mattress. This is a terrible gift, but it wasn't. It was a great gift. To this day, I have a mattress and I didn't have to spend hundreds of dollars on a new one. Singleness, whether you like it or not, whether you wanted that gift or not, is a gift and an opportunity that God is inviting you into and finds its place in the New Testament. I want to read you this quote from Barry Danilek, a single, vocationally single theologian. Here's what he writes. The New Testament does not interpret the mandate given to Adam, Noah, and Jacob as a divine command given to all people. Traditional marriage, procreation, and material prosperity, that is getting rich, are not associated with the new covenant. Instead, the central message of the New Testament proclaims the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus' primary concern is not to provide a guide for living well, but to offer spiritual life, a new life from the spirit that is eternal. This spiritual formation is experienced through the process of becoming Christ's disciple. Therefore, the New Testament does not give us any explicit mandate to marry or procreate physical human beings. What does it give us? We are given, he writes, a new mandate found in the Great Commission of Matthew 28 to create more spiritual human beings, disciples in the form of Jesus. This means that every person, whether you are married or unmarried, whether you have children or don't, whether you don't have children because you cannot have children or because you have chosen not to have children, whether you desire to be married and burn with passion to enter into a marital relationship, or if you are content in your singleness and to live out the life that God has called on you and feel that upward call as Paul describes it, you are invited to this, the fullness and abundance of the promises of God. When I chatted with my friend who is single, I asked her what she would want me to share with those who are single and following Jesus as singles. And she said this, she said, they need to know that God is not holding out on you. That when you are genuinely walking with Christ and in real community, you are not lacking anything in your humanness. Do you hear that? Do you understand that? For the single and the waiting, the longing to be married, for the widow and the widower, for the divorcee, the person who has been abandoned or abused or let down or betrayed, for the same sex attracted person who is gonna submit their sexuality to Jesus, whoever you are, whatever your status, whether you fit the perfect picture of what a so-called family is meant to be or not, you are invited to experience the fullness and abundance of life that Jesus offers. And the church, our church, ought to be the safest place for someone to experience any of those realities and to admit that those are the realities that they are facing, whether they enjoy them or not, that they might experience the love and grace and acceptance that Jesus offers and invites them into something. As theologian Joseph Hellerman says, the idea of salvation cannot be re reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus. God's plan is much more encompassing. God intends salvation to be a community-creating event. Or as Psalm 68 puts it, God sets the lonely in families. And what that verse is saying is not God sets people up. And we got to matchmake and make sure everybody gets married and look around our church and go, who's single? Who do we got to pair together? Who do we got to make sure goes out on a date? Who do we got to set up? 
No, the invitation is to be invited into families. You and I are called to be that family. We as a church are called to be that family. Your community group is called to be that family. There should not be a person in our church, whoever they are attracted to, whoever they have experienced, whatever they have gone through, whether they are married or unmarried, who does not experience the reality of family, Jaleesa and I have lived here for four years. We have never had either of our parents live here. We do not have kids, but we have family. We have a community group that, yes, meets once a week for a couple of hours, but beyond that functions as our brothers and sisters, the people we do life with, the people we pray with, the people we walk alongside and celebrate the wins and weep at the losses. Many in this church, in this community have leaned in as spiritual parents and grandparents to us. We have never eaten a meal on a Thanksgiving or an Easter by ourselves, except during COVID, of course. See, we may not have a biological family here, but the invitation of the gospel for the single and the married is to be invited in to the family of God. Peter Volk, a same-sex attracted Christian who submitted his sexuality to Jesus and is living a single celibate life, writes this, Jesus enriches our concept of family, rejecting familial ties based solely on biology and establishing that Christian family is bound by this, the blood of Jesus. In the gospel, we are invited to taste and see that the Lord is good and that his goodness to us is not based upon fulfilling the cultural or the church's ideas of what is right and proper and what a family is meant to look like. That we might echo the psalmist when they write that you, O Lord, alone are my portion and my cup that we can look at Jesus and Jesus alone who can be our total and complete comfort, the one who cares for us when we are not doing well, that we can look to Jesus as our true and complete love, who loves us at our best and at our worst, that we can look to Jesus to be our purpose, the upward call of our lives, that we can look to Jesus as our model of what it means to be fully human if we're married we can stop putting the pressure on our spouse to be what only Jesus can be. If we're single, we can stop chasing after another human being to fulfill what only Jesus can fulfill. What you need to know as we close today is that the greatest wedding, the greatest marriage, and the only eternal marriage of all time is between Christ and his bride, the church, you and I together. And we are all invited, single or married, parenting or childless to experience the reality that Revelation 19 describes. Then I heard something, John writes, like a voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and the rumbling of a loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself and she has given fine linen to wear bright and pure. We are united and brought into family, not based on what our family looks like, but based on the invitation into God's family through the blood of Christ, single or married, parenting or childless. That is what you are invited to today. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for each person that you have made in your image that whatever their stories, whatever their struggles, whatever their realities, God, that you invited them to experience the fullness and abundance of life that you offer, that you have invited them to experience the family reality 
that the church is called to be. And Lord Jesus, we ask right now that whatever our relationship status, that whatever the nature of our family looks like, that you would give us great hope in this, that you are our portion, that you are our cup, that you are provider, comforter, that you are the one who loves us unconditionally. God, we thank you for marriage as a picture of the gospel, but we submit marriages to you as nothing more than a picture of that gospel. And Lord Jesus, we invite you to move and to work in our lives. Whatever stage we are at, whatever breakdown of family we may be experiencing, we invite you, Lord Jesus, to move. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to do the work that only you can do. And we rejoice in the coming wedding day where we will be united to one another and to you at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we rejoice and we give these things over to you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.